There is a website that is entitled, I Am Better Than You Are. It lists 45 reasons why I am better than you. Now, very few people would actually have the audacity to come right out and say that I am better than you are. But a lot of people feel that way, that they are better than others, and even base their hope on going to heaven on the idea that they are better than others. They think that God is going to judge on some kind of curve. And uh, they're not a Hitler, and therefore they're going to be accepted before God. As long as they are better than the majority of people, they are pretty confident that they are going to be going to heaven. The Jewish readers to whom Paul was writing thought that they were better than others because they were descendants of Abraham and because they had the word of God. In Romans 2, 17 and following, it said this, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will, approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Well, unfortunately, they were sure. They were sure that they were better than these sinful Gentiles. Paul had just finished addressing the issue as to what advantage did the Jewish people have over the Gentiles. And the answer was given to us in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what value is there of circumcision? The question actually is in verse 1. The answer comes in verse 2. Much in every way. There were loads of advantages. To begin with, or as the King James translates it, chiefly, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles or word of God. The most significant spiritual advantage the Jews had over the Gentiles is that they had the word of God. And that word of God could instruct them about God and themselves, reveal their sinfulness and their need for a savior. However, just because the Jewish people had an advantage over the Gentiles did not mean that they were morally superior than the Gentiles were, which is the main point of the section that we're in today. If you look at verse 9, the question is asked, what then? Are we Jews better off? In the uh, NAS, it translates it, what then? Are we better than they? In the ESV, the word off is supplied, that is, that it's not found in the original. It is intended to be helpful, but I don't think it is. I think it is, in fact, not helpful at all. For the advantage had already been raised in verse 1. What advantage did the Jew have? They had a lot of advantages. The question was, were they better? Were they morally superior? Were they somehow meritorious of salvation? The point is that the Jews were not morally superior to the Gentiles. We find in this section that is before us, that no one is morally superior than anyone else. For notice verse 9. What then? Are we, and I'm going to say, better? No, 
Not at all. Why? For all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All people, without exception, before they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, are under the condemnation of sin. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, there is a fourfold statement detailing the universal sinfulness of every single human being. The point of this section is that every single human being on the face of the earth is sinful. And every single human being on the face of this earth needs a savior. There is no one who is meritorious or deserving of eternal life in their own righteousness. And this is said in four different ways in our text. And so that's the basis of our outline this morning, looking at these four universal statements that we are not without sin. First, the first statement of the universal sinfulness of every single individual is found in the words, there is none, no one who is righteous. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. This teaching that no one is righteous in and of themselves is consistent with all of the scripture. For notice it says in verse 10, as it is written, if anyone should have known this, it should have been the Jews, for they had the scriptures. That was their advantage. But unfortunately, they did not take the scriptures to heart when it taught that none is righteous, no, not one. This is a quotation taken from Psalm 14. There are at least uh, six different allusions to the Old Testament in these verses. But that, those verses are not exegeted in our text, and I'm not going to exegete them either. But the point is that this teaching is consistent with the Old Testament. The teaching that no one is righteous is applicable to every single human being without exception. Only Jesus, the God-man, is without sin. Notice verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, and now these words, no, not one. Just for emphasis, and yes, not even one. No person on the face of this earth is righteous. That is why every person needs the righteousness of God. That's the great good news of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God is salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. How we who are sinners can be viewed as righteous before God. What does that mean when it says that no one is righteous? It means that no one measures up to God's standard. That standard of God's righteousness is revealed in the law of God. Notice Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. 
The law was given so that it would reveal our sinfulness. The law in its narrowest sense refers to the Ten Commandments. The law in its broader sense refers to all the commands of God. And the law in its broadest sense refers to the ceremonial, moral, and civil law of God. Obeying the commands of God is not the way to righteousness. Let me say that again. Obeying the commands of God is not the way to righteousness. No one has ever been saved by keeping God's commands. Notice Romans 3.20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No one is going to be declared righteous, which justified means. To be justified is to be declared righteous. No one is going to be declared righteous by their having been obedient to God's commands. Because they aren't obedient to God's commands. And they were never given as a way to obtain righteousness. They were given to reveal sinfulness. Notice the second half of verse 20. For through the law comes the knowledge of sins. Many of the Jewish people failed because they tried to be righteous by keeping God's commands. In Romans chapter 10, it says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The commands of God were never intended to be a means by which either the Jewish people or ourselves would be considered righteous before God. The second statement of utter sinfulness of every single human individual is found in the words that there is none who understands. Notice verse 11. No one understands. There is none that understands. There is no one who completely and fully realizes the person and the character of God. Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. There is no one with spiritual insight that makes proper understanding of the truth that they have revealed to them. We have been emphasizing that truth comes in three forms. There's the truth of God that's revealed in creation. There's the truth of God that is revealed in the conscience. And there's the truth of God that's revealed in the Word of God. And in whatever form that truth comes, people don't get it. They don't get it from creation, they don't get it from the conscience, and they don't get it from the Word of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking, their foolish heart was darkened. Claiming to wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Rather than worship God for who he was, they changed God's glory into being like us. That is the most notable way 
that we fail to understand God. We try to make God like us. We try to understand God in terms of what we would do or what we would think or what we would deem as appropriate or right. But God is quite different than what we are. He is holy. We are not. His standard is much higher than any standard that we would ever set. Mankind, as I said, has a tendency to compare with one another. 2 Corinthians 10, 12 says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. If that's what we base our righteousness on, it says we don't understand. We don't understand. It's not about how we measure up against one another. The question is, how do we measure up against God's standard? And we all fail. We all fail that standard. The purpose of the law was not to bring about righteousness through keeping it. It was to show that all had sinned. Look at verse 19. Now we know, all right, we understand that what things, soever the law said, it said to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. We understand. The Jewish people should have understood that their righteousness did not measure up. That was the whole point of the sacrificial system. That was the whole point of offering lambs to offer up bulls and goats. It was to demonstrate that they had sinned and they needed forgiveness. And all of those animal sacrifices were to point to the Lord Jesus Christ, a Savior who would come to take away sin. The third statement of utter sinfulness of every single individual is found in the words that there is no one that seeks after God. Romans 3.11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Now that might seem a bit odd to you. No one seeks for God. No one, not one. The tendency is to say, well, what do you mean no one seeks for God? I know a lot of people that are seeking for God. No, you don't. No, you don't. The Bible says there's no one that does. There are a lot of churches that are based on a seeker-friendly idea of trying to reach the seekers. Except there's no one seeking. Now you have to understand what that means. It does not mean that people are irreligious. It doesn't mean that people don't pray. It doesn't mean that people don't do religious things. We're talking about the Jewish people here. You see, and that's what's so mind-boggling to them. They prayed. They read the scriptures. They went to temple. Later, they went to synagogue. They offered sacrifices. They were religious. But they weren't seeking God. What no one seeks after God does mean is that every person has gone their own way. Notice verse 12. 
All have turned aside. All have turned aside. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We have become self-seeking. The great command is thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But no one seeks God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind. Not one. No, anyone is totally dedicated to doing the will of God. We are so easily sidetracked. We are so easily distracted. We go our own way. Isaiah says we're like sheep that wander off. Every human being has wandered off from solely following the purpose and will of God. Oh, we seek what God can provide for us. We seek health. We seek prosperity. We seek joy. We seek happiness. But we don't seek Him. To know Him. To delight in Him. To do His will. No one does that perfectly. Mankind was created to show forth the image of God. In Genesis 1.26 it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Mankind was created to show what God was like. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Notice the emphasis on the word together in Romans 3.12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. The word, I don't want to get too far ahead. I won't look at worthless yet. But simply to say that together they were to show forth the relationship of the Trinity. They were to show forth the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit of mutual love and care and submission. But mankind went their own way. They chose to take another path. They chose to live differently. And in mankind's sinfulness, we no longer reflect the image of God in the way that we should. The purpose of salvation is, according to Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, to once again to reflect the character and purpose of God. Application, fallen mankind does not seek God in a submissiveness, does not seek to serve God. Fallen mankind seeks a God who will serve them. Fallen mankind wants to bring God under their authority, under their power, under their control. They want God to be their genie. And they'll offer prayers so that God will do what they want him to do. They don't view themselves as God's servants. They don't view themselves as under obligation to God. 
They don't view themselves as existing to bring honor and glory and praise to God. They're not seeking that. They are, in our text, worthless. Worthless does not mean that they are without value. It's not saying that mankind is insignificant. What it's saying is mankind is unprofitable. Worthless in the sense of useless. Mankind has lost its way and lost its calling. The calling is to show forth the glory of God. The calling is to demonstrate his image. The calling is to be like God. But because mankind has chosen to go their own way, they have become worthless in terms of being useful to God, achieving his purpose and his end. God can't use them to reflect his glory any longer. The fourth statement of universal sinfulness is that there is none who does good. There is no one who does good, verse 12, not even one. The fact that no one does good is evidenced in two ways in our, in our relationships. First, it's evidenced in our speech. Romans 13, Three, uh, and uh, Romans 3, 13 and 14, their throat is an open grave. They are tongues to deceive. The venom of the ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And the fact that no one does good is evidenced in our violent nature. Verse 15, 16 and 17, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. We are not people of peace. We bring misery, we bring heartache. We offend others. And the cause that no one does good is because mankind does not fear God. Notice verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This again is a quotation from Psalm 14, which reads as follows. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. When it says that the, the fool has said there is no God, it doesn't necessarily mean that they practice atheism in a formal sense. It isn't the complete and utter denial of God. What is being described is a practical atheism. That is, that mankind is not accountable to God. That there is going to be no consequence to their sinfulness. There's not going to be any consequence to their actions. God's not going to do anything about it. There's no fear. This world does not believe in a hell. According to recent polls, the majority of Christians don't believe in a hell. There's no fear. There's no quaking. There's no concern. We live in a day and age which everybody thinks they're going to heaven. And that God owes it to everybody to save them. We have a God made in our image of what we would do. And so he's obviously going to welcome everyone into his presence. There's judgment. There's condemnation. If there weren't, 
There had been no reason for God to send his son. There had been no reason for Jesus to die on the cross. The reason he died on the cross was to bear our sins. Because the wages of sin is death. He had to die. And he experienced God's wrath on the cross. When he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he was bearing our sin. And in eternity, all those who do not know Christ as their Savior are going to be forsaken of God for all eternity. They are not going to be in his presence. They are going to be banished from his presence. But mankind does not fear that. Fallen mankind does not believe that. And it's reflected in their actions. They reject God's authority and their accountability to them. The point of our text is that all mankind stands under the condemnation of God. Religious and unreligious alike. Those that we would view as moral as well as those that we would view as immoral. In God's sight, no one is righteous. He does not compare us with each other. He compares us to his standard. He compares us to himself. Be ye holy, for I am holy. The one to whom we are compared is God. And we all fall short of that standard. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So, what are the implications and applications of this passage? I would submit to you there are applications in three areas. First, theologically. What are the implications? Well, first, that salvation is a gift of God. Because we cannot earn it, it has to be given to us. It's an act of God's grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. <clears throat> and even that, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. The very fact that we seek God is a matter of his doing. Because <coughs> no one seeks God. God sought us. God ran us down. We love him because he first loved us. He said, I have chosen you. You have not chosen me. If we're saved this morning, it's totally by the grace of God. For there is nothing in us to distinguish us from anyone else. We were all on the same path. We were all headed for the same destruction. We were all concerned about ourselves rather than the things of God. But God, if we are saved this morning, graciously reached deep into our hearts and changed us.
and brought us to himself. Salvation brings honor and glory to God for it makes the distinction of our salvation lie in God and not ourselves. Because Romans, excuse me, Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. No one can boast in their salvation. No one can say, I deserve to be saved. No one can say, I was smart enough to have faith when everybody else didn't. No one can say, I was seeking God when no one else was. There is no reason to boast this morning if we're saved. Paul said, I will glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. He and he alone is to be praised. Secondly, there are applications for society, sociological applications. What are the implications for our society? First, we learn that there is no group of people who are inherently better than any other group of people. Let me say that again. There is no group of people, there is no ethnic background that makes one group of people inherently better than another group of people. The Jews weren't better than the Gentiles. Whites are not better than blacks. Hispanics are not better than Asians. And we can go all through all the ethnicities and all the racial backgrounds. No one is better than, than the other. Everyone stands in need of a savior. Everyone has their standing before God through Jesus Christ and him alone. We learn a basic truth, and that is man is not basically good but sinful. As much as we hear and as much as we'd like to believe that, that mankind is basically good, everything in the word of God teaches us that mankind is basically sinful. And the examples that are given in our text, which we did not look at in any great detail at all, but about the lying, about the violence, about all the, the sins that are committed, are a demonstration of the unrighteousness of mankind. All of the ills of our society are a practical manifestation of mankind's selfish desire to live for himself and not for God and not for one another. We live in a dangerous world because people do not love God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind. And they don't love their neighbor as themselves. Our society is looking for answers to gun violence, hatred, racial division, poverty, lack of care for people in their worst situations. All of those things are an extension of sinfulness. All of those things are an extension of mankind's indifference to one another and the glory of God. The only answer to society's ills is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to fix what is wrong is for a moral transformation that can only come through union with Jesus Christ. 
You can't pass a law. You can't elect a president. You can't evoke a Congress that is going to bring an answer to the needs of our society and our world. It's only in Christ. It's only in the gospel. And it's why this world is so desperately in need that we share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, for it's in him that we are transformed, and it's in him that this world is transformed. There will not be peace on this earth until ultimately Jesus returns. And when he does, there will be full peace, absolute peace, genuine care for one another. Righteousness will reign. And there is application personally. There is an implication for each and every one of us that are here today. It means that not one of us are without sin. 1 John says, if any man says that he is without sin, he's a liar. We've all told lies. We've all lost our temper. We have all been selfish. And we all have put our own desires before that of God. All of us stand in need of a Savior. There is no one here today that is good enough to be in God's presence for eternity. Jesus died so that we could have forgiveness of sins and enjoy peace with God. The application of this message is trust in Jesus to take away your unrighteousness. For in him your sins are forgiven and he transforms us into his likeness. But without Christ, you have no hope. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how good you are. You are not good enough. It's not about being better than someone else. It's about measuring up to the standard of God, which is his own personal righteousness and holiness. So Paul said... I am not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the wise and to the unwise, to the barbarian and to the free. Every single person, the gospel is for them. The gospel is for you. We have a responsibility to share this gospel with every human being on the face of this earth. For there is not a place where they are without condemnation. Although there are places that they are without the gospel. So the church, us, the people of God around the world, bear a responsibility together to take this message to every single 
human being on the face of this world. Go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples. If we're convinced of man's lostness, then we have to share with them the gospel, for it is the only way that they're going to be saved. It's the only way that you're going to be saved. You believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray, if there is anyone here this morning that has never trusted in Christ, they've, they've heard the gospel many, many times. It's gone forth from this pulpit. It's gone forth in many different ways. But maybe they have never, ever yet committed themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, if there's anyone here this morning and you have never asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior and to deliver you from your unrighteousness so that you might live for him, I pray that this morning would be that day. Would you raise your hand so that I can see it? I'm not going to uh, call you out publicly, but I want to be aware of it. I want to be able to pray for you. Quickly, would you raise your hand? Uh, yes. Anybody else? Anybody else? Our Father, I thank you for this one person that has recognized the need this morning. I, I pray that, Lord, you would show them that forgiveness is found in Jesus. You would comfort them and give them a surety that in you our sins are removed and we have the promise of new life and eternal life. Oh, Lord, help us to share this great good news with others. To your glory and to your praise. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. In light of everything that we've read from the scriptures this morning, if all are under sin and all are unrighteous, then what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's stand together as we sing our final hymn, number 237, What Can Wash Away My Sin. Please stand. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus.